Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm pleased to begin today by thanking Alicia D., Michael Y., Ryan M., and Casey H. for their donations to the salon that uh, are going to be used to offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And I also want to send out a special thank you to Wendell, who has just made a significant donation to the salon in the form of Bitcoin. It actually should be called a grant because, well, it's significantly larger than any donation that we've ever received in support of these podcasts. And I should say a little something about Bitcoin while I'm at it. The first Bitcoin donation that was sent to the salon came in 2014, and at the time it was worth $5 in U.S. funds. Since I've always been a big supporter of Bitcoin, my policy has been to hold on to those coins because, well, I have a feeling that they're going to increase in value, which they have. And that $5 donation has now become worth more than $50. In fact, every Bitcoin donation that I've received is now worth a lot more than it was when the donations were made. From my perspective, Bitcoin is a gift that just keeps giving. So to Wendell and the rest of my Bitcoin donors, I thank you as well as all of our other donors from the bottom of my heart. Now it's time to get back to work on this series of talks that Terence McKenna gave back in April of 1993 when he held forth on a wide range of topics, including what he saw as some important technology that was only a year old at the time. It's called the World Wide Web. <laughs> Another thing he mentions that I suspect will catch your mind is his statement that, and I quote, When fascism comes to America, it will be called traditionalism. That seems to be how it's going to present itself. End quote. Now, I doubt that I'm the only one who sees the phrase, Make America Great Again, to be the lunatic ramblings of a psychotic child who thinks that phrase refers to the power that has been traditionally held by only white men. When fascism comes to America, it will be called traditionalism. Welcome to 21st century America. Now, about an hour and 17 minutes into this talk, I hope that you're in a place where you can stop for a moment and re-listen, maybe more than once, to Terence's rap about how DMT shatters the illusion of self. I've listened to it several times now myself, and the more that I think about what he's saying, it brings to mind that famous J.B.S. Haldane saying, and I quote, Now my own suspicion is that the universe is not only stranger than we suppose, but stranger than we can suppose. End quote. See if that doesn't come close to what you think when you hear this fun rap of his. Now, here's Terrence. Well, is there... Uh, you all went off to lunch somewhere, not where I was, so I don't know where you went. <laughs> you found the restaurant I couldn't find. But did you... Uh, is, is, do you want, are there issues outstanding from this morning or a direction you want to send us off in? Yeah. Maybe psychedelic use use more for teaching rather than continued use in in terms of what um, in later they're saying about needing to be mainlining all the time. I can't see that that's 
Well, for those of us that maybe once you learn the territory, you learn the state, that the onus is on you then to operate from that more and more and more and more rather than to take more responsibility. Well, I, I was just talking to this reporter from the San Francisco Bee, or from the Sacramento Bee, about this very thing. Uh, I think if you're stupid, there's just no hope. You know, you, you have been afflicted with a terrible circumstance, and you have to struggle with that. Uh, you know, a lot of people took LSD in the 60s, and it seemed to have no effect whatsoever on them. I mean, you know, a lot of pretty colors and this and that. And then they went out to be war planners and corporate executives and, and so forth. Uh, I, I think it's very important to talk about and analyze your experience. There is no communication even within the confines of your own mind if you can't describe what's going on. And so, you know, it's, the idea here is not that you should take psilocybin day in and day out or week in and week out, but that when you do it, you should do it with dedication and attention and pre-planning. And you, while it's happening, you must pay attention. And after it's over, you must analyze it. You, you must understand it. You must try. It, it's a tool for thought. It's a tool for understanding. And uh, it, it, as far as education is concerned, you know, I think one of the reasons I keep coming back to CIIS is because unspoken in what's going on here is the idea that modern psychotherapy of the transpersonal sort is an embryonic kind of neo-archaic shamanism. And there is something to be said for judicious use of the concept of the guide. Uh, I, I think that the guide should first of all be very psychedelically experienced. A therapist who has never taken these substances can't guide you because they've never been there. Uh, but in the presence of a skilled therapist, all kinds of progress in dealing with personal issues and complexes can be made. People say this stuff is escapist. But nobody who's ever taken it will line up behind that. It's too difficult. I mean, I've had people say to me, I, I've heard people refer to psilocybin as psilocybin and said, I've never had a bad trip on psilocybin. And I think to myself, gee, I wish I were you. Uh, because I don't think the goal with this stuff is to get through it without ever having a bad moment sort of unscathed with the parental seal of approval stamped across your chest. Uh, the goal is to learn, and learning is often painful, and the most important lessons are often the most painful. I mean, if you're going to have to drop an attitude or a way of relating to somebody or an opinion about yourself or something, the, these things are painful. And uh, often you don't just say on the, at the height of the psychedelic, oh, I see, I should change my mind. No, often there's tears and soul searching and then a sense of dawning light and then the conversion. Uh, this, is, this is not easy work to do. It's not easy for anybody to do. 
I had a guy tell me once uh, in the Amazon, he said, just don't think because we wear penis sheaths and live in the rainforest that this is easier for us than it is for you. It's, it's not. It's as challenging to your humanness. It challenges your humanness no matter where you start to out from. So you have to bring something to it. But if you bring something to it, it will work for you. And I'm of the opinion, and I get a lot of flack from this, and you're perfectly free to pile on, that uh, many other spiritual techniques of advancement don't work, even if you are intelligent, dedicated, attentive. They just don't work. Or they didn't work for me, that's all I can say. Uh, this, this will work. And if you bring sincerity and integrity to it, it will respond beyond your wildest dreams. Yes, did you want to say? It's what you have to offer in terms of um, some insight from your experience about how to get into the body. Well, it's a complicated question. I'm an alienated intellectual. Probably most of you are as well. Uh, I may have been that before I ever reached psychedelics. Uh, Basically, I think that it, it almost comes down to practicing a noisy form of aesthetic criticism of the society. If something is stupid, you should say so. And if something is tasteless or brutal or insulting or demeaning, we just have to say so. Now, the problem is there is so much that is tasteless, insulting, and demeaning that you would spend your entire time uh, doing that, well, isn't that what the cult, the countercultural milieu is? I think it's a group of people who, to greater or lesser degrees, are entirely uncomfortable with the official culture and then try to embody an alternative culture. And it's a culture of tolerance, of uh, uh, broad-mindedness, of uh, immediate experience. It's not a work ethic culture. It's not a pile-up wealth kind of culture. It's a culture that lives in the moment. I mean, uh, and to my mind, what we can do is be more adamantly countercultural and creative. That's why I'm so happy to see something like uh, rave and house and ambient music come along. Because, you know, rock and roll, which was previously the, the sustaining thing of the counterculture, was totally co-opted. And, uh, and uh, the, counter, the, cult, the official culture turns all criticism into a fashion statement. That seems to be how it operates. So in terms of embodiment, I think what we have to do is be creative. At lunch, I was saying, you know, the culture, the crisis that we're in as a planetary society is a culture of consciousness. There ain't enough of it. That's what happens when, when women are raped in Bosnia. That's a failure of consciousness. That's what happens when rivers are polluted with DDT. It's a failure of consciousness, a failure to correctly appreciate cause and effect. And if there is anything which increases our consciousness, 
I don't care if it's a religion, a food, a drug, a sexual product, a, a magazine, if there is anything which increases our consciousness, we should find out what it is and get with it. And once you've increased your consciousness, a little, a lot, some, uh, it's not doing any good then unless it is embodied. And the way it's embodied, I think, is by pushing the art pedal to the floor. It's the only pedal which we have been allowed to touch. We don't get to touch the uh, uh, international investment profile pedal or the international diplomacy pedal. Those are all reserved for the masters. Uh, but art has been ceded to us. And art can either be fawning and sycophantic or it can be radical and challenging or it can be uh, uh, transcendental and inspiring. And I think what we've accepted in the arts in the last 20 years is the idea of immense fragmentation and personal expression. Th this is exactly the wrong thing because what that is is ego. We don't care what Jeff Koons thinks about the person he's sleeping with and all this other stuff. This is just self-indulgent nonsense. The idea that art should save humanity is uh, very out of fashion in the cynical 90s. But I believe it. And I believe, and I believe that the technologists who are working at our elbows are giving us tools more powerful than we or our critics ever imagined could exist. And if we use those tools uh, for the explicit purpose of creating a new cultural agenda, uh, it, it, it will be done. You know, we're all a little confused about this, but those folks over on the extreme right wing, the Pat Buchanans of this world, they know exactly what's going on, and they call it cultural war. And while they're moving up their tanks and digging foxholes, what are we doing? You know, wandering around asking what's happening. Uh, cultural war is very real. And the, they, the, the people who are, you know, I, I realized sometime in the last 48 hours that when fascism comes to America, it will be called traditionalism. That seems to be how it's going to present itself. So uh, I think art is our great uh, our great ace in this game. Right now, the most yeah. Well, one more thing. I was going to say right now the most exciting cultural frontier, uh, to my mind, on this planet, uh, is the internet and the world wide web, and that is a beast which escaped from the control of the dominator institutions. It was built to wage thermonuclear war and to be indestructible. Well, when thermonuclear war ceased to be a hot option, the indestructibility of it remained. And now it can't be turned off, it can't be controlled, it can't be regulated, and look who's on there. I mean, guys with long hair and girls with short hair, and this drives the masters crazy. Uh, so I look at the Internet as uh, a vast canvas and to which we are each invited to make our own contribution. And if, if we seed 3D 
to the orthodox culture, then we should make cyberspace our own. Um, one of the things that I, I didn't stress enough this morning was uh, the visual acuity in, in, uh, empowered by psilocybin leads to hunting success, but the higher doses of psilocybin propel you past observation of animal habits and environments and into the imagination. And I think, you know, that the cultural compass of this species points toward the imagination. That's where we're going to live in the future. Uh, that's what we were born for. That's where we are at our best. In 3D, well, as James Joyce says in Finnegan's Wake, here in Moikane, we flop on the sceny side. Moikane being the red light district of Dublin. But up Nient, prospector, you sprout all your worth and you woof your wings. Well, up Nient is spelled these days HTTP colon double backslash www yak yak yak, right? In other words, the imagination is being turned into a piece of real estate. And uh, the, the faster we can occupy it and give it the, the caring, boundaryless, psychedelic communal tone of our community, uh, the closer we are then to having a foothold uh, or a grasp of a, a real solution. Yeah. sort of agree with you and sort of differ. Uh, I remember once I was at some impasse in my personal life and I decided I should take a psychedelic and pose a question. You know, and they sometimes say you should pose a question. And I had never done that. So the question was, am I doing the right thing about my life? And well, the answer came back what kind of a chicken shit question is that to ask a galactarian intelligence? Well, I suppose that was the answer I needed to hear. It put my problems in perspective. I realized, you know, you don't ask Freud to clip your fingernails, for God's sake. Uh, uh, so, <clears throat> in that sense, I'm not sure about intention. But I, the, the way I understand intention is that you should very conscientiously control set and setting going into it. Uh, don't take these things in crowded, noisy, socially complex environments on an empty stomach with people you don't know. <laughs> that this is definitely a bad strategy to follow. Uh, and it's... You know, going, dancing your ass off in a noisy environment is a perfect strategy for clearing your system of a drug. 
I mean, that, if you take a drug you don't like, what do you do? You go outside and chop a, a wood for three hours, and then you feel much better because you physically uh, worked it off. The way I like to do these things is uh, in silent darkness, on an empty stomach, at high, at, at strong to stronger doses, not recklessly high doses, but what I call effective doses, uh, alone. And this last thing just seems to throw people, this alone. It tells me what a triple Scorpio I must be, that so many people are absolutely horrified of the idea of taking a psychedelic alone. When I wouldn't, it, it would, you'd have to twist my arm to get me to take it with someone. Because if I take it with someone, it's inevitably going to be about them. And, the, and I may not want that much of them in my life, you know. Even if I take it with someone and they never say a word, and we both lie side by side not touching, I don't drift deeply into my trip. I find myself listening. Are they breathing? I can't hear them breathing. <laughs> But now, so maybe they're dead, but maybe they, maybe I just can't hear them. So if I disturb them, that's not cool. On the other hand, if they're dying, and as a courtesy, I let, and then my mind just, you know, it, it just goes into a tizzy. Well, maybe you're not as neurotic as I am. But, uh, yeah. A question related to what you're speaking of around the methodology of, of the stupid. And, I used to uh, adhere to, to a similar model in terms of hypothesis use on my own, and then um, became involved in the uh, Roquette-type group, um, which for a variety of reasons I've left, including, and I guess there's another part of that, which is that there was uh, a tremendous amount of uh, undercurrent deception uh, and guru abuse in the group, which unfortunately I didn't become aware of until quite a while later. So the, I guess the two-part question is now I return back to the previous model, basically taking it by myself. Now, so I'm wondering what you think of um, a highly structural type model, and, and secondly, whether you have any thoughts about um, uh, uh, guru abuse and, and the use of psychedelics. Do you all understand what he's referring to by the Roquette-type model? He's referring to a person, a psychiatrist, uh, Salvador Roquette, who's operated in Mexico for years. I've never met him, so correct me if I'm not doing it justice. But as I understand it, this is basically the assault theory of psychedelics, where you give people, first of all, you give them multiple substances. Uh, it may be LSD, it may be LSD with ketamine, it may, a lot of substances, and then a lot of input. It can be music, but I, I've heard of cases where he took a, a, a group of, of Jewish housewives from Long Island and showed them Holocaust footage. Well, that kind, well, it depends on what you're after here. I mean, if you're trying to break people down, th this sounds like it would break me down. I would not know how I could even survive something like that. Uh, but I think my theory is almost exactly the opposite. I th say there should be very little input. I don't think you need to go out and buy a lily tank for your basement, but as close to that as you can get is good. 
In other words, I lie on a bed, silent darkness, and look at the back of your eyelids with the expectation of seeing something. It took me years to be able to articulate this because I thought everybody did this, but apparently not. I once talked to Roland Fisher, the guy I mentioned this morning. Uh, he'd given psilocybin to 2,500 grad students. He'd taken it 20 times himself. And I said, I said, well, Roland, what, what do you make of these hallucinations, of these volleys of visual hallucination? And he said, I never closed my eyes. I was floored. I mean, that is so antithetical to my instinct with the stuff that I couldn't even imagine it. Then your question about guru abuse. I, I don't know what it is in me. Uh, I guess it's just deep cynicism. I discussed this once with the mushroom, and what I was told was simply this. For one human being to assume that they could attain enlightenment from another human being is like a grain of sand on the beach assuming that it can attain enlightenment from another grain of sand on the beach. In other words, all grains of sand are alike. Didn't you know that? And all people in this particular area are alike. How many gurus have to be caught with their hand in the cookie jar or the nookie jar or whatever it is before you get the message? They are just like us. And that may be granting them a level of moral uh, sophistication they lack as a class. Uh, what I truly believe is nobody knows anything. The more generous position is you know, well, the Buddhists have a piece of the action, and the Mormons know something, and everybody has a piece of the action. The mushroom says nobody has a piece of the action, that no one knows anything. And that's tremendously liberating, and it carries a responsibility for you to take yourself seriously. You have no other source. Everything else is going to be hearsay, secondhand. Rumor, thrice told, yourself is your instrument for the exploration of these dimensions. Uh, there is spread through the world a lot of what I call, and I hate the gender bias in calling it this, but it would be dishonest to change it. I, I call it wise old man-woman. <laughs> wise old man-knowledge. It could be wise old woman-knowledge. There's a lot of this all over the world. If you go to Asia, you will see men sitting in doorways at evening, smoking their pipes and watching the sunset as their grandchildren play at their feet. It's a safe bet. This person never took LSD or psilocybin, and yet they've attained a certain kind of uh, existential validity, wisdom, comfort with the phenomenon of their own being. And that can be taught and handed down and talked about and inculcated and cultivated. But this psychedelic thing is something uh, very different. I don't, I don't think anyone can lead because I don't think anyone is in a position to lead. If you counter by saying, what am I doing? 
I'm pointing toward an open door. That's all. The, the method and the material is what you need to take away from this weekend. The opinions of Terence McKenna are simply that and worth just that much. But if you take the techniques and the materials, you can create your own world of, of meaning and, and coherence. Yeah. Five. If you weigh 145 pounds, five dried grams, weigh it. This is the other thing. People uh, don't weigh their doses. They eyeball it. Well, the ego, in a frantic effort to save itself, has an amazing ability to, under, to overestimate the weight of mushrooms. Uh, when, you, when you actually show somebody five dried grams lying on a plate, they usually pale visibly at the very thought that that's what you're talking about. Yeah. What is that? Five doesn't matter. Captain doesn't matter. Mm. Um, I just wanted to add that there are species that are quite a bit stronger than others. Yes, good point. When I say five dried grams, I, I mean Stropheria cubensis, the cubensis, which is the commercially cultivated one, the large, silvery, stipe, golden-capped mushroom. Uh, some of the North Pacific Northwestern species are twice as strong or three times as strong. Uh, but if you were to have just applied this literally across the board, you probably get further faster than if you uh, are careful. Well, you know what they say. There are old mycologists and bold mycologists, but there are no old bold mycologists. <laughs> Uh, if you're going to do that, learn your taxonomy or join the San Francisco Mycological Society or something. Uh, many of these things are hard to confuse with anything else, but Psilocybe uh, semilanceata is in fact easily confused with a species of Gallerina that you don't even know there's a problem till 12 hours after you've eaten them, and at that point you're dead on arrival. There's nothing science can do for you. Your liver has just turned to mush. Uh, so uh, what I believe people should do is cultivate mushrooms. I mean, you want to take the alchemical path. The cultivation of mushrooms is an in incredible spiritual and physical discipline. It will teach you all those good Lutheran values, <laughs> cleanliness, punctuality, attention to detail, uh, how to keep a clean workspace, for God's sake. Uh, and, uh, and then you are absolutely confident, and you have also obtained karma-free mushrooms outside of the cycle of uh, inevitable criminal syndicalism and the karma that carries with it. And I've participated in it plenty myself, so I'm not knocking it. But it would be nice if people would produce uh, their own mushrooms because inevitably you produce more than you can use and then, you know, can help people out down in 5B or something. Yeah. How long does it take to grow mushrooms? Oh, start to finish six to seven weeks. It's not like growing any plant you've ever grown. Mushrooms are not a plant. Uh, it requires... 
you know, the sophistication normally reserved for an eighth grade science project. Uh, you have to be able to cook petri dishes and this sort of thing. And then? Fresh. Fresh. If you will dehydrate the mushrooms, you'll discover they're 90% water. So five dried grams becomes uh, 50 wet grams. And again, this is a plateful. Um, so, so figure 10 times more than if it's dried. Or if you're a little conservative, eight times more than if it's dried. Yeah. Is there any that you can recommend in that whole Well, my, uh, two books I would recommend. The book I wrote with my brother called uh, Psilocybin Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide is still in print from Quick Press. In, and they have an 800 number here in the city. Uh, quick Trade, I'm sorry, not Quick Press, Quick Trade. Uh, and then Paul's famous book, uh, The Mushroom Cultivator's Encyclopedia, is a very good book. Uh, if you are serious about this, try and find someone who's done it and get them to teach you, because it's very easy to do, but doing it without being shown by someone is a little like trying to assemble a complex toy on Christmas Eve you know, flap F into slot P, that kind of thing. It's much easier to just be taught by someone. Yeah? I had a dream that I slept in the early part of the evening to wake up at midnight to the two mushrooms at one. It was like I had a dream about that. I wondered about doing it in the same thing of the night. I always do it at night. Yeah, that's the uh, And the reason is a practical one, and that is, and this gets us into another realm, but I'm a, a, a hallucination chauvinist. I really like hallucinations. To me, the hallucination is the, the proof that I am connected to the other. And so uh, if, if I take a low dose and don't hallucinate, even though I may have insights and write paid cover pages with ideas and so forth, I consider the trip to be somewhat of a failure. Uh, hallucination uh, is, uh, is what's important. Now, what was the other part of your question? Nighttime or daytime. The hallucinations are, are reluctant to form in light, I've found. Uh, that's not true of everything. For instance, DMT. I prefer to, my ideal site for smoking DMT would be a grassy sloping hillside somewhere in Marin County or something. Perfect in bright sun. Uh, but all other hallucinogens seem to prefer darkness and can organize themselves in darkness much better. Um, um, it's quieter, although, boy, there are some weird sounds in the middle of the night. Uh, it sounds like the entire house has been surrounded by a motorized platoon or something. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the sincerest form of religious worship is an act of understanding that the universe wants to be understood by its creations. There is a need for dialogue. So uh, when you take psychedelics, the way I think of it is once you get past the personal 
stuff, then the model for the psychedelic voyager that I use is the fisherman for ideas. Ideas are the proof of the pudding. And so you put your little boat out on the sea of mind and let down your nets. And, and what you're hoping for is that minnows don't swim through the net. Minnows are ideas that have a certain striking peculiarity but are utterly, uh, ultimately unsatisfying. Uh, an example would be to spend much time meditating on why your little finger just fits your nostril. Uh, you know, it's an interesting insight, but you can't build on that much, I think. Uh, and if you have, and if an idea is too large, it'll rend your nets and you won't be able to wrestle it into the boat. And in fact, you and your nets and your boat will be dragged into the ocean and we'll just put you in a corner somewhere and look in on you once a week. Uh, so what you want is middle-sized ideas. And they can be, all, any idea counts. It can be an idea for how to reorganize a, an investment plan or how, what quantum physics is really trying to say, or, you know, the structure of cytochrome C. It's a specific problem with an answer. And uh, I really believe that salvation is an act of understanding, that the moral life is a precondition for salvation, but that the final step is an act of, of understanding. So I take seriously the idea that these things are consciousness expanding and, and that we should use them to add to the storehouse of culturally validated ideas. Yeah. I'm working with the issues in one and I'm trying to think how to articulate it in kind of I'm wondering about how age and intention come into the use of psychedelics. And I know when I was a lot younger, and I was using LSD and mushrooms. I didn't have the intention to really use them for personal growth or for understanding. I did it just to kind of have a good time. And as I got older and my own awareness increased, my use of them changed. And I'm wondering what your views are or if you have any insight on is there a certain age when you think it's appropriate to use these as part of the process for personal growth as opposed to abuse with a lot of children. I think it's more um, about the culture in which you're embedded. In other words, I'm obviously considerably older than you. In the 60s, we actually did it with fairly high purpose and did it at fairly high doses. I mean, it, you weren't even getting into the game if you didn't take 500 micrograms. Now people take 70 micrograms and feel that they can hold forth on the subject of what is LSD. Uh, I, I think what happened was uh, in the 70s and then in the 80s, uh, the dose was dialed down and it permitted people to take it less seriously. And so you didn't take it as a fun thing because you were young. You took it as a fun thing because you were young in the 80s. And that was how the 80s dealt with it. You, you can dismiss LSD as just kind of a fun thing if you keep the dose down under 100. But 
once it starts climbing, it begins to be more and more uh, profound. Uh, I have noticed as I age and my peers age that we seem to get more sensitive to it, not, which is not to say that we don't need to take it, but that when we do take it, we don't need to take quite such flattening amounts as in the old days. But uh, I think uh, once you are conscious of your identity, and of the world you're in sometime around 16 or so, then I think it becomes just a matter of circumstance and predilection and intelligence. I, I don't think, you know, psychedelics work with intelligence, but they can't increase it beyond a certain point. And, and some people are just, I almost said shallow, and then I decided simple. And then it, some people just are beyond the reach of these things somehow. It just doesn't address their agenda. What this seems mostly to have an appeal for is uh, slightly culturally alienated members of a ruling elite. I mean, where are the black people in, who should be at this thing? Uh, where are the Latino people who should be here? These things are inevitably incredibly white and male. Um, why is that? Well, I'm not sure. Yeah. That, that's a good one. What I would say is just make sure you are really in nature. Because the reason I stopped taking LSD outside or psychedelics outside was because every time I would take it, something so weird would happen that I just could not stand it usually having to do with another person, usually a stranger. I mean, you can go up to the top of Mount Whitney, look around, make sure nobody is there, <laughs> drop, and within 15 minutes, some, the ranger wants to see the, the camping permit, the army is doing helicopter maneuvers, 30 Cub Scouts show up. I, I mean, it's, it's uncanny. So I, I, and some people like to do that. I mean, some people's idea of a good time is to take 500 mics of LSD and wander around lower Manhattan meeting people. <laughs> Listen. Well, these have to be small doses because at effective doses, you're lying on the floor as dead. So, yeah, I mean, and you learn what you can handle. You know, I mean, some people can take vast amounts of LSD and it would never enter your mind that they're loaded at all. And other people, you look over at them and they're bursting into laughter and can't uh, behave themselves. So. <laughs> Well, I think DMT is, if DMT didn't exist, we would have to invent it. It's sort of, it, there has to be something in the world, there has to be a weirdest thing. Once we have the concept weird, there has to be a weirdest thing. And DMT is simply it. It, 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 DMT is 
that thing which above all other things you have convinced yourself doesn't exist. It's the one thing you are certain is impossible. Uh, that's how it seemed to me. Uh, it, it completely deconstructs reality in a completely unexpected way. In other words, reality can come apart many different ways. And if it begins to come apart, you hope it will begin to move along some traditionally sanctioned spiritual arc, you know, toward Jesus or heaven or hell or something identifiable. What happens with DMT is there is an eruption of the unexpected. It is, seems to be in its nature to be unexpected. And it seems to carry the message with incredible intensity that everything you know about reality is wrong. It isn't what you think it is. Uh, when you smoke DMT, when I smoke DMT, and according to Rick Strassman's research out at New Mexico, when most people are exposed to DMT, very quickly, like within 30 seconds to a minute, you are conveyed into an inconceivably alien and dramatic environment of 100% hallucination. Nothing you have ever seen before is there. There is nothing there that the English language can describe because there is nothing there that any English-speaking person ever has encountered before, or German, or French, or Swahili. You, you are conveyed into not a unitary world, not the white light, the one, or any of that, but a, unit, a, a complex, multiplistic world of motion, light, color, depth, interaction, and none of it makes very much sense at all. It's a metaphor for what I'm talking about is imagine that you were a paleolithic person, uh, getting loaded around a campfire somewhere on the grasslands of Africa. And imagine that for a minute and a half you suddenly found yourself standing in Times Square at rush hour. Well, you could sort of make sense of it. I mean, when you came back, you would say, well, there were people, sort of. There were sort of people. And then there was a lot of motion. And then there was a lot of verticality and... Uh, and uh, but basically you're just thrashing and clawing the air in front of your companions. They are not getting a picture of Times Square at rush hour from this description. DMT is like that. It seems to punch through to an impossible world, a parallel dimension. And it's not as if it would be shocking enough if it were purely incomprehensible. The problem is it's not quite purely incomprehensible. There's a 2% residuum that you seem to be able to relate to. These self-dribbling basketball-like entities that I call tykes that come bounding up and leap into your body and crawl all over you and jump in and out of your chest cavity. Uh, they are singing in some kind of a language that you don't hear but see. And so they're singing objects into existence. Some kind of musical grammar is condensing as small pieces of furniture around you. And y you have to remember, 
30 seconds before you were in some shabby apartment, you and your strange friends <laughs> fiddling with some drug, and now that's all gone, and, and you're, you're not sleepy, you're not dazed, you're absolutely who you were. That's the strange thing. DMT doesn't affect the part that we call ourselves. Say, I am who I was, I'm exactly who I was, but what? the hell has happened to reality and it's been entirely replaced by something that I never saw in any science fiction film, never heard about in any fairy tale, never dreamed of, never hinted of and now I'm fully there and these little entities are dancing around attention and then they want you to do something they want you to sing objects into existence with your voice and they're doing it. They're showing you how it's done. They somehow, grammar is seen in that world. It's as though a switch has been thrown in your neurophysiological machinery and language, which you used to hear, you now see. And these things are putting a lot of pressure on you, saying, do it, do it, don't, don't question, don't think, don't reflect, just do it. And I sort of feel something cross between heartburn and satori begin to move its way up my chest and when it comes, when it reaches my mouth, my mouth flies open and this glossolalia-like linguistic stuff begins to happen, which is like language, like liquid, like silk, uh, I can see it and it's colored and it's complicated and now I do not understand what this is for. I can join you in speculating. It looks to me like, first of all, language itself is a mysterious activity, a behavior. God on the, on the body of nature, human language is the place to look. It is not anticipated in other forms of animal organization, and in us it reaches this excruciating level of expression and with it we have created culture which is a virtual reality that we surround ourselves with not only of ideologies Marxism democracy monarchy but buildings highways infrastructure so it's almost as though uh, language is an alien artifact of some sort you remember Bill Burroughs said it's a virus from outer space well, this is sort of like that idea. But language is obviously not something that is a finished enterprise. And I think that we are approaching, either through our own, the natural evolution of the soma, of the body, or through technology, or through some combination of the two, we're approaching a place where we're going to switch channels and switch the language channel into a more broad bandwidth mode and we're going to see what we mean instead of hear what we mean. That the convention of using small mouth noises to symbolically indicate objects in the world so that those who share the same set of linguistic assumptions can download this acoustical babble and reconstruct a thought out of it is going to be traded in for something more like a direct acoustical hologram where then ambiguity is much less prevalent. You know, uh, 
if I read you a, a paragraph from Proust, we can spend the rest of the afternoon discussing what did the author mean. You've all been in those situations. What did the author mean? But if I show you a sculpture by Brancusi, we just walk around and look at it. It self-evidently is what it is. It does not have the ambiguity that adheres to written and spoken language. And I think this ambiguity has allowed misunderstanding, and misunderstanding has allowed pain and agony. So it may be that we are on the brink of a higher form of language, the descent of the logos. This, this would be it, the manifestation of the logos and the psychedelics, by allowing a look through the hyperspatial window at future states of human organization, as I argued this morning, is actually giving us a taste of a, a human future that may be far in the future. In the same way that if you had smoked DMT 20,000 years ago, you might have landed in Times Square circa 1960. Uh, it's an insight into a future development in the physiology and mind of man and makes it very suggestive then that DMT is being elaborated in our brains as part of normal metabolism. We have genes that produce DMT. Well, what if those genes were to be switched on in a more dramatic way? Uh, then what would the quality of culture be? If culture is the serotonin trip, then what kind of culture would we live in if the serotonin were backed out in favor of a DMT-maintained neural substrate? I don't know. Lots of hands up. You've been patient. Um, I have two questions pertaining to the lady. You said that we take a certain amount of psilocybin, in English, and I know it's kind of silly, but what's up with speak other languages? Are you saying that you know, it speaks back to you so you may understand? It speaks to you in your own language. Uh, let me tell you a story which seems to me really a strange story, but it happened to me, so I'll tell it. Uh, when I first started growing mushrooms, I was taking, I was testing all these batches and taking it quite a bit of the time, and one evening, I got locked into this voice thing, and it was singing a little song, and the song was something like this. Says. Says. It ended each line with the word says. So I thought, interesting. Then I went back and listened to Maria Sabina's uh, Mushroom Velada, where she's singing in Sotsil, which is a mountain Indian language of central Mexico. She's singing in Sotsil, and the, and the interlinear translation is right there on the page. This word means says in Sotsil. So I thought, aha, this thing is, can, can do it in any language. It, it is apparently uh, omnilingual, yes. And? Well, there's a lot of anecdotal talk about this, but I don't think there's ever been a statistically coherent study. Uh, coming out of the 60s, of course, there was a rash of LSD babies, and some of those LSD babies are now 19, 25 years old, and they, they are, are perhaps in this room, and, 
uh, can speak for themselves, uh, uh, but it's never been studied. It would be an interesting thing to look at if you could follow up. The idea that LSD breaks chromosomes was simply a government lie, a smear, that to this day survives in certain portions of the literature. It is not true. It is not even a little true. It is 100% horseshit. Uh, it just doesn't do that. Aspirin and caffeine break chromosomes with an order of magnitude more alacrity than LSD. That's right. And my, my brother did a study, actually, Lawrence Rockefeller uh, paid for much of it, uh, a study of these maestres in Brazil, these Santo Daime people who've taken Unyal, Unyal de Vegetal, these people who had taken ayahuasca weekly for 40 years and they did blood studies and tissue studies and uh, they're fine. In fact, they are slightly above normal in certain indices. It just hasn't been studied. These, many of these LSD babies were also born into very loving, communal, neo-archaic kind of settings, and they had lots of unconventional nurturing and raising, too. So it's very hard to separate all these, to tease these factors apart. Yeah. Well, you know, Merciliad, in his great book on shamanism, he subtitled it, The Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. What a shaman is in command of are techniques, and they're not based on his personality. That's where it's different from the guru. If once the shaman has told you his techniques, he's told you all he can tell you. And you then have to apply the techniques. The ideology is fairly absent in shamanism at a practical level. Uh, it's, it's basically about experience, not about an ideological preconception of things. The way I handle gurus is just to simply say, what can you show me? And then if you're told, well, you have to sweep up around the ashram here 12 years or so and do daily prostrations and then we'll cut you in on the good, you just can pick up your knapsack and keep going. Uh, because real, the real stuff is not hidden like that. Uh, when I went to South America and people said, I said, what can you show me? And they said, well, let's just sharpen our machetes and go out here into the woods a half a mile and cut some vine and bring it back and boil it up, and I'll show you what I'll show you. I'm very suspicious of lineages and secret knowledge and situations where somebody decides where somebody else is worthy to ascend to the next level because... You know, man for man and woman for woman, there doesn't seem to be a, a more scheming, tawdry and venal subclass on this planet than gurus. I mean, there may be some good ones, but my God, they keep bad company. Uh, yeah. From your last word, Brad, I was thinking up about... I heard what I am saying in my mind, synesthesia... 
because it involves the use of LIAH. Uh, here's a book called uh, Psychedelic Shamanism that has recipes. But LIAH, is high, lithium aluminum hydride, is very explosive and don't uh, make a fuel of yourself. The other approach is to try to find a, a weak source in nature and concentrate it. And uh, uh, Phalaris grasses, Phalaris tuberosa and arundinaceae, you can grow them and uh, do a, a low-tech water extraction. I'm not sure, uh, nobody has ever handed me a gram of DMT created by these techniques. This is all sort of backyard theory, but in theory it should be able to do this. There's also a plant called Desmantha selenoensis that grows in the Midwest that has a very high concentration of DMT in the root bark. It's interesting to talk about that plant for a moment because it's only been known that it contained DMT in the root bark for about uh, five years, but <clears throat> it could have been used by the North American Plains Indians to produce uh, uh, some kind of a shamanic hallucinogen, but never was, as far as we can tell. And this is an interesting question, those of you who may be going on to ethnography or something like that. Why do some people use hallucinogens and not others? It simply isn't a matter of availability. For example, second only to the Mexican concentration of species in Oaxaca and the Sierra Mazateca is the concentration of over 35 known species in the Pacific Northwest. Yet evidence of use of those mushrooms by the, the um, Tlingit, Chimsham, and the Northwest Coast Indians is very hard to come by, ranging from maybe none to maybe a little tiny bit, but by no means is it established that they did this. Uh, this says Desmanthus thing is another thing. Uh, why was it never utilized? Uh, this new chemical and plant that I talked about this morning has an interesting uh, relationship to all this. Salvia divinorum. Uh, this Mexican mint that contains salvinorine alpha. It's used only by two fairly small language groups, the Thoxil and the Tzotal, but, and, and they call it Ojas de la Pastora, the leaves of the shepherdess. But when you ask them, well, what do you call it in, uh, in Thoxil? What do you call it in your language? They say, we have no name for this plant in our language. Well, that's impossible if they've been using it for any length of time at all. It seems to suggest, and they say, that this is a new plant. But what's puzzling about that is it's known from nowhere else on Earth. So is it that these people discovered this plant as recently maybe as 50 or 60 years ago? and having a tradition of plant use, they inculcated this one into it. There's a similar case in Africa. You probably all know about Iboga, Tabernanthe Iboga, which is the, um, the only really major African alkaloid-containing plant. Uh, and it's the basis of a religion in Gabon and Zaire called Bawiti. And interesting on this gender issue, just as an aside, 
this stuff is used to hold relationships together. It's well understood that that's what it's for, is to bond people. But, uh, and these people who use it, the Fang people, they say they got it from the pygmies. But what's strange about Iboga is there is no record of anybody using it before 1870, anywhere. This is very puzzling because the Portuguese had been into West Africa since the 1440s and trading and buying slaves and bringing back uh, artifacts and this sort of thing. No record of Iboga use before 1860. Uh, so we can't assume always that these things are ancient. There's a lot of controversy about peyote. Peyote, uh, if you're not looked into the matter, you might assume this is this ancient hallucinogen. Uh, but in fact, the most of the evidence argues that until uh, the 1880s, Sephora secundifolia beans were the preferred shamanic intoxicant of the Rio Grande drainage. Well, now, today, Sephora secundifolia is considered a poison. It has cytosine in it. It's a terrible thing to take. This is another thing, I mean, as long as I'm just riffing on these things, you, you have to realize that intoxication is a culturally um, defined situation. Uh, for example, uh, in, in Madagascar, the Malagasy Republic, the large island off uh, eastern Africa, there are no major psychedelics but there are what are called ordeal poisons. Well, these are plants where you take it, you think you're going to die, you beg to die, and then you get better and are fine. Well, uh, people come out of that reborn, rededicated to their families and their professions and their position in society. Why? Not because it was psychedelic, but because a near-death experience is intrinsically uh, an experience which causes you to re-examine and re-evaluate uh, your relationships to the world and other people. Yeah. But I, I heard a couple years ago that popular underground designer drug hand company invoked a certain kind of near-death experience to something that it was described as being a kind of neurological state that their body then go and take a very catastrophic and basically it would give you a certain kind of experience of a, of a, of a violent kind of demonic and that, that had some kind of popular view. If it's not true, it probably will be in time. Uh, some people have nominated DMT for that role. My friend Rupert Sheldrake, he calls it a, a, a thanatoptogen. He, he says, when you really die, when you are beyond any returning, DMT floods the dying brain. And the only way you can have that experience without dying is to artificially induce it. Uh, this may be so. I mean, one of the most challenging things about DMT, and we might as well, you know, it's the afternoon of the first day, so we might as well dig into it. What about these entities? 
that I talked about. What about the types, the self-transforming machine elves, the jeweled geometric basketballs? Are we to just dismiss this as, as hallucination, we whose lives are built on hallucination? Or, or, or what is to be made of that? What kind of an entity can have a mind but not a body and be loose inside your mind? Uh, I, th I think that possibly, I mean, this is sort of the most woo-woo place we'll pass through unless you bait me, but <laughs> if, if, if you ask shamans worldwide, how do you do what you do, they will say, well, we, we use uh, ancestor spirits. The ancestor spirits help us. Well, you know, you may think you're countercultural. But most people hearing about ancestor spirits are able to dumb that down into, oh, these naive, charming Indians, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But what if there is actually something which survives bodily death that is actually continues to exist in a dimension which we would have to call mental or, or trans-real? And what if you can come and go from that dimension using shamanic techniques. Well, that is in fact what shamanism has always claimed to anyone who would listen. They say, you know, the shaman passes back and forth through the same doorway through which the dead pass, but they do not return. The superhuman condition of the shaman his or her ability to cure, to handle fire, to drive metal objects through flesh. Uh, all of this is to show that they are of both worlds, that they, they partake in the ontos of normal being, but they also partake in the ontos of transcendental being. And I think it would be the most astonishing cultural development of the last 500 years if we were to actually learn something about the after death that would strip away our materialist and cheerful assumptions that when you go into the ground you're nothing but compost. In a way, that belief has been the permission for all of our dumbing down and devaluing of ourselves, our society, each other, and the planet. The, the belief that, well, ultimately it doesn't amount to anything anyway. Well, what if ultimately you don't know what you're talking about? Th then you have to come to terms with that. I mean, I think everybody should have a psychedelic experience, but to professionally dedicate yourself to a lifetime, you have to have a particularly intense 12th house a configuration of some sort, I think. This metaphor that I tried to put out this morning about how the shaman goes to hyperspace and therefore can see next week's weather, next week's hunting, who's going to recover from illness and who isn't. It, what going into the fourth dimension means is all time becomes co-present. You know, there's that piece of doggerel poetry, I dreamed I saw eternity the other night, an endless golden ring. In other words, eternity is all time in a completed form. And uh, I, I think, you know, timelessness, stopping the world, as Castaneda said, this is an indication that you have truly crossed 
the boundary out of three-dimensional Newtonian space and into this hyperspatial dimension. Um, I Really, I can't say enough about this because I think this is the key, uh, that life is a process that conquers dimensionality. It always has been. The earliest forms of life were fixed slimes. They had no motility. They had an existence as points. Uh, later, they acquired motility, the ability to swim around, and were aware then of the concept here and there. And then really the entire evolution of life on this planet is simply to develop better organs for moving around in three-dimensional space. Stronger legs, stronger arms, better binocular vision, so forth and so on, until you get to human beings. And we invent language. And what is language? It's a strategy for escaping from the narrowness of the present moment. Because if you have language, you can say, I remember the time, or you can say, why don't we plan on doing so and so. In other words, you and when you get written language, then you get history, then there is, in a way, the past never goes away. The past changes into history, and in that form, or the present changes into history, and in that form it stays with us. And now, culture, well, electronic culture, we dream of an information lossless society where no information is lost. And then that means, in a sense, where no time passes away. You know, we'll have Marilyn with us and JFK, everybody, a kind of eternity. Uh, so, uh, and so language is then seen as a, a strategy for the further uh, overcoming of dimensional limitation. And now, with the internet about to go visual and, and all that, it seems like we're again about to take another step deeper into the conquest of dimensionality. But there's nothing new in all this. This is the business that biology has been about since day one. And then the glossolalia. There's a feeling, it's, you know, not to be crude, but it's somewhat like a belch or something. It's like a bubble of something moving up. And then when it gets to your, uh, when it actually gets, and I have, I, I always, my technique or my intellectual style, though it may not seem like it, is to always seek for a rational explanation first. And then if, then from there more and more exotic explanations. So I was really floored by these, this type thing. Because that seemed to me unambiguously not something which was supposed to happen in the universe as I was told it, that there were supposed to be small non-human intelligences leaping in and out of my uh, chest. And one idea that's occurred to me, and since you, 
some of you are interested in psychology, it's maybe worth talking about. Plus, we get to inject a buzzword here, which is, as you know, it is now understood that we are really not one person. We have many personalities. A multiple personality disorder is simply when you manifest this on a level that irritates other people. Uh, multiple personality order is when you have them all lined up in a row and the right ones always talk to the same people and so the illusion is maintained. Well, in the same way that, you know, if you had a big mirror, you look in the mirror and you see a reflection of yourself. But now if you lift the mirror up and bring it down on the ground and shatter it, what you see now are, is not a shattered reflection of yourself, but hundreds of little reflections of yourself, each one whole. Well, may it not be then that what DMT does is it shatters the illusion of the self and says, you're not a self, you're a tribe of selves. And here they are, dancing, performing, singing. Uh, they, they are the fractal adumbrations of the personality. That was the buzzword that I wanted to get in. They are the fractal adumbrations of personality. That's one possibility. The other possibility, souls, like I said, an ecology of souls. That is the conservative explanation. Why is it the conservative explanation? Well, because we are here, and so if we think of them as human beings of some sort, they just happen to be dead human beings, Nevertheless, we see that there are human beings, so perhaps there is a residuum that survives death, and that is what these things are. Other possibilities must range more further afield. A parallel continuum actually inhabited by these things, that they are not human beings in any form, that they are autonomous entities with their own universe. That's one possibility. Another possibility is um, that these are the long-sought extraterrestrials, that they don't come in beryllium ships the size of Manhattan to take control of our gross industrial output, that that's a crazy way of thinking about extraterrestrials, that they come through a technology of mind, that they come uh, by collapsing space across megaparsecs, and appearing in the mind as a hallucinogenic experience. But then, of course, the question is, why? And why this sense of familiarity? And why this deep affection and concern for suffering humanity? Uh, I don't have answers, but uh, I know that these questions need to be answered. The domain is real. Yeah, we'll do a question and then it's break time. I just wonder if there's really that much of a difference. I mean, you're presenting these alternatives, uh, maybe for clarity, as completely separate. But the idea of uh, autonomous entities living in some hyperdimensional space, but the idea of our separate personalities, or the idea of other beings that uh, maybe have a more traditional existence that is very far away, uh, are they really all that separate? It seems to me that if the mind actually makes its home, at least in large part, in hyperspace, 
in the everyday world of the mind, and if that's where our thoughts live, then uh, if we take these drugs, they transport us uh, to a place where we see that through another filter. Um, in this hyperspace, that's where the other minds live, presumably, there may not be that much of a difference between those three alternatives you actually propose. It may be the ego, which we talked about earlier, that is causing the confusion here. We think of ourselves wrapped in this skin, living at this point, and then all this stuff is very confusing. But if we expand our definition of mind to be, or too early as that is to be, then perhaps these entities, I mean, they're fascinating, but they're not so mysterious or outside the domain of where they should be. Well, yeah, I mean, you're right, although, well, let's take two of the possibilities. If it's an ecology of souls we're dealing with, then there should be, they should have complete knowledge of the history of the planet and everything that's ever gone on and so forth, but they won't have a complete encyclopedia of galactic history or something like that. Uh, I, I think that well frankly I don't know what I think it depends on how recently I've smoked DMT uh, the overwhelming impression is of cognitive dissonance occasioned by the simultaneous perception of alienness and familiarity these are the most alien things you've ever seen and you know you've been here before and you know it's very important and you know it's basic to who you are but if it's the self, then what have we done to the definition of the self? The self is supposed to mean that which is most familiar to me. If the concept self can also include the notion that which is least familiar to me, then it's almost too broad a concept to, to use. I, I think what we need is scientists, meaning you don't have to wear a white coat, but you do have to have the scientific attitude, rolling up their sleeves and going in there with the same attitude that Wallace went to the Amazon and that Darwin went to the Galapagos. And let's figure out, let's map the flora and fauna. Let's get a taxonomy of these types. Let's try and figure out uh, where they're coming from and what their purpose is. Uh, I, I, shamanism, I believe, is the study of this dimension and it's not reached any conclusions. At this point, it is a phenomenology, not a science. And so the Amazon shaman, he has a language of control and description, which is satisfying in his context and to his people, but it may not be satisfying in your context and to your people, even if you assimilate it perfectly. No, it's like physicists talk about... Uh, uh, charm and strangeness of quarks but this has nothing to do with strangeness or charm in ordinary speech these are very very complicated concepts where the technical gloss has been to call it strangeness and when a shaman tells you he deals with ancestor spirits you for whom Casper the friendly ghost is the image of an ancestor spirit definitely get a cockamamie notion then when you try and map Casper the Friendly Ghost onto the Amazon shaman's notion of an ancestor spirit. These concepts require a lifetime of manipulation and familiarity before you understand where the, the, the boundaries will lie.
Well, why don't we take a five-minute, ten-minute break here, and then we'll come back. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Actually, uh, we're going to take a one-week break rather than Terrence's suggested five-minute break. <laughs> and uh, then I'll come back with the next installment of this Terrence McKenna course from April of 1993. You know, I guess that it's a good thing that I'm no longer a young man in college. Because if I was, I'm sure that I would pursue my studies in the area of science and then do as Terrence just proposed. I would roll up my sleeves and go into psychedelic explorations with the same scientific cast of mind as did Darwin when he went to the Galapagos. Now, I know that uh, that probably sounds a little melodramatic, but if you've had a few dozen deep psychedelic experiences, you most likely have begun some of them in exactly that state of mind, at least subconsciously. Which reminds me, uh, well, I've got more than 20 hours of cassette tape recordings that I made on solo mushroom trips over 20 years ago. And I've never listened to them. <laughs> Maybe I should do that someday, but I can assure you that there won't be anything of scientific value in them. And that's the point, isn't it? We need to have some of our fellow psychonauts begin a more scientific exploration of what will always be primarily subjective experiences. I have to admit that when Terence mentioned what he called small, non-human intelligences, the first thing that I thought of were those insidious products from Amazon, Google, and Apple that listen in to your conversations at home. Some of my friends have these devices in their homes, and I've noticed that sometimes, even when they aren't intentionally triggered, these machines speak up and enter into the conversation. Now, you may find them useful, and I guess that they probably are. But to me, they are simply creepy. Now, when Terrence said that the best way to learn how to grow mushrooms is to have somebody show you how to do it, did you think about YouTube? Well, I did, and I guess the reason that he didn't mention it is <laughs> because back then it was uh, more than 10 years in the future. Uh, YouTube wasn't invented till about 12 years after this talk was given. Another thing that uh, Terence talked about in this session was the work of Dr. Salvador Roquette, who isn't nearly as well known in the psychedelic community as he should be. Arrowhead.org begins its entry about Dr. Roquette saying, and I quote, Salvador Roquette was a beloved psychiatrist who worked with different shamans and healers throughout Mexico between the years of 1967 and 1974. He trained many psychedelic therapists in his approach and worked with over 1,700 patients. He developed very intense methods of conducting group psychedelic sessions with powerful impact. End quote. <laughs> now, that little statement about very intense methods doesn't even come close to describing what Dr. Roquette's sessions were like. I've had the opportunity to view some of the videos that he showed, and, well, they were created so as to intentionally induce bad trips in his patients. I don't even want to think about those horrific scenes, let alone describe them. I've met several people who participated in his sessions, and I've also met his daughter and the two people who organized his North American sessions. While no one that I've met ever directly criticized his methods, I don't recall any of them ever wanting to repeat one either. That said, uh, well, I hope that in the future some budding scientists will study Dr. Roquette's work to see if maybe some of his techniques are worth further investigation. 
but I'm going to leave speculations about that to the professionals. Now before I go, I'd like to bring you up to date on the Monday Night Salons that I've been hosting over on Zoom.us. Until now, I've kept the invite list to my writing patrons over at Patreon.com. However, I'm going to try a little experiment for this coming Monday's online get-together. So far, we've ranged from 4 to 10 people who have been meeting online at 6.30 every Monday evening for what have been mostly unstructured conversations. But there are some features of this conferencing software that I'd like to try out with a larger crowd. And this may become a permanent thing, but I don't want to commit to it until I see if it also is of interest to you and any of our other fellow saloners who want to join us. It's free, by the way. Here's the announcement. On Monday, March 5th, and uh, that's in 2018, if you're listening to this somehow in the distant future. Well, on Monday, March 5th, I'll host a Zoom.us conference from 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Pacific Time for anyone who would like to join a few of us for a friendly conversation. And for the topic this time, I'd like to focus on the pitfalls and perils of living in a surveillance state where your every move and thought is seen by the government and their bully boys like Facebook and Google. Now, for background, I suggest that you listen to a recent podcast that Eric Davis did with our mutual friend, Mark Pesci. Eric's podcast is entitled Expanding Mind, and the program that I'm referring you to was posted on February 22nd of this year and is titled Goodbye Reality. Even if you don't plan on participating in our discussion of this topic, I highly recommend that you listen to this interesting podcast that features two friends of mine who you've also heard here in the salon. And if you're interested in joining us on Monday night, you'll find the details in today's program notes, which are located at psychedelicsalon.com. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.